In the Caribbean, in the waning weeks of hurricane season, the days are humid and hot and gray. There's no real reason to expect to see the sun. Similarly, if you're flying above those gray clouds, in a high-altitude reconnaissance plane, let's say, there's no real reason to expect to see the ground. On the 14th of October, 1962, a U-2 spy plane looked down on the western end of the island of Cuba and photographed Soviet medium-range ballistic missiles under construction in the vicinity of San Cristobal. This began the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But what if? Sure, what if the Russians hadn't made a deal with Castro to begin with? It was Khrushchev's original sin in that regard. What if Kennedy hadn't been so willing to believe the Soviet assertions? But what if there was no one to blame? What if in the final analysis, everything changed because of the wind? Before the missile sites were found in Cuba, the CIA was flying two U-2 missions per month. On the 29th of August, 1962, a CIA U-2 flight discovered eight surface-to-air missile sites on the western half of Cuba. Given the limited airtime, it was decided that the next flight should cover the parts of the island that hadn't been covered on the 29th, in case there were more hidden SAM sites. On the 5th of September, the next mission was flown and discovered three more SAM sites in central Cuba. But then, on the eastern end of the island, heavy cloud cover obscured the ground. There was a 48-hour period around the 15th that seemed favorable for a flight, and it went to final briefing on the 15th but was delayed for 24 hours because of the weather. And then it was canceled. The mission was eventually flown on the 17th, but the clouds closed in and the flight yielded no usable photography. Eventually, the CIA completed a photo mosaic of the SAM defense of Cuba in early October. The delay, the CIA wrote in a memo on the subject, was due entirely to the unfavorable weather. The memo reads, much of Cuba was under heavy cloud cover throughout most of September, and the cloud patterns were rapidly and continually changing. The few periods of acceptable weather were so fleeting that they had passed before flights could be mounted. On October 9th, a plan was drawn up to investigate the possibility of medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba near the SAM sites. The weather on the 10th, 11th, 12th and 13th all prevented the flight from taking place. The Strategic Air Command took over operational control of the overflight and the clouds apparently parted for General Thomas Power and the U-2 mission went ahead on the 14th. And that's when the U.S. first discovered Soviet missiles in Cuba.
Let me paraphrase the formerly secret CIA summary of the weather for photo reconnaissance in October 1962, especially over the west end of the island where the missiles were found. October 1st, west, poor. Second, west, poor. Third, west, poor. Fourth, west, poor to bad. Fifth, poor to bad. Sixth, poor. Seventh, good, but the mission was flown over the northeast instead. Eighth and ninth, there was no weather check because the aircraft was out of commission for servicing. Tenth, poor. Eleventh, poor. Twelfth, poor. Thirteenth, poor to bad. Fourteenth, good. Mission flown. Found MRBMs. All this time, the Soviet personnel were working on the missile sites, and they were getting closer and closer to operational status. According to the CIA memo, between the 5th of September and the 14th of October, the day the missiles were found, poor to bad weather prevailed over the target areas for 30 of 40 days. Blind U-2s were the rule, not the exception. And so what might have happened if a storm had rolled in, if the wind had blown a little harder, if the rain had lasted a little longer? Then the missiles might not have been found for another week or two, and they would have been operational and armed. And the crisis would have been over before it started, the president's hands already tied and Khrushchev victorious in his nuclear gambit just because of the rain. The events of the Cuban Missile Crisis unfolded as they did because of one surprisingly clear day in the middle of an otherwise normal, tropical October. But what if? The Missiles of October Part 5. What might have been, this time on the Cold War Vault. Part 1. The Unknown Unknowns. Some of you probably want more details on this war that never happened. I agree. For the minutiae of the run-up to war, from the personal to the body politic, there are plenty of good films and books, and even more bad ones. For those of you who would like a little more detail on the war that might have been, I'm going to compile this series into a mini audiobook with about an hour of additional content, including more narratives of the war and some more recently uncovered material. I'll give you some more details at the end of this episode. It's fascinating to think of what might have been, but I'm here to discuss the smaller counterfactuals that the years since the Cuban Missile Crisis have revealed to be almost painfully factual. In any crisis, and in fact in any decision process at all, 
there are a few categories of fact. There are known knowns, known unknowns, unknown knowns, and unknown unknowns. So let me break those down in terms of the Cuban situation. Known knowns are the things you know. They are comforting, if often a cold comfort. You know you know them. In the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the U-2 aerial recon photography of the missiles would be a good example of an early known known. The missiles were a fact. The Soviets in Cuba were a fact. The U.S. knew it without any ambiguity. It was a known known. Known unknowns are not for the weak of heart or the arrogant. These are the things that you bravely admit that you just don't know. And you know that you don't know them. Were the missiles completed? If not, when would they be completed? Were there nuclear warheads in Cuba, or just the missiles? Were they on the missiles or in the bunkers? These were all very early known unknowns. Later, when the messages from Khrushchev became incongruous, the XCOM knew what they didn't know and had to speculate. Was Khrushchev ousted in a coup? He wasn't. Or was he just operating under extreme stress? He was. Unknown knowns will catch you with your pants down. They are assumptions. This is something you think is a known known, but you're wrong. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, a good example of this is McNamara's assumption about Soviet troop strength. In planning the almost certainly inevitable invasion of the island, the Defense Department assumed 8,000 to 10,000 Soviet personnel. All of the plans for the invasion relied on those numbers. In 2008, Russian sources revealed that the Soviet Union had succeeded in smuggling 42,000 troops onto the island. The unknown unknowns presented the greatest danger in the Cuban Missile Crisis. They would have been encountered early in an invasion with unpleasant results. These present a significant danger particularly for the least thoughtful leaders and decision-makers, but even for the thoughtful and the most meticulous in their deliberations, what you don't know that you don't know can kill you. And that was the situation throughout the Cuban Missile Crisis. Despite the most juried of opinions and decisions of the XCOM and the President, there was always a secret that they didn't know that they didn't know. But Khrushchev knew, Castro knew, and all the Soviet commanders in Cuba knew. And as we'll see, it's another example of what a nearly catastrophic intelligence failure the Cuban Missile Crisis really was. Each of these in turn, and sometimes in combination, offered many opportunities for the Cuban Missile Crisis to move down paths that ended in nuclear war. It would take decades and the collapse of the Soviet Union itself before some of these facts came to light. Part 2. These are not the days of John Paul Jones.
Maybe it happened, and maybe it didn't. One of the more famous verbal exchanges of the Cuban Missile Crisis, behind eyeball to eyeball and you're in a pretty bad fix and you're in there with me, happened in Flag Plot in the Pentagon. Flag Plot is an information collation room in the Pentagon where the Chief of Naval Operations can see everything that's going on and manipulate the fleet. Admiral George Whelan Anderson Jr. was that Chief of Naval Operations from 1961 to 1963, and as such was in command of the quarantine of Cuba during the crisis. In the first week of November, he was on the cover of Time magazine, which called him an aggressive blue-water sailor of unfaltering competence and uncommon flair. Also in flag plot on that day, the first full day of the quarantine, was Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. McNamara was a compulsive details kind of guy, which was perfect for a systems analyst, and it was through this superb implementation of systems analysis that he had become the Secretary of Defense. To those who were committed to doctrine and not analyzing and rethinking doctrine, People like McNamara were enigmas and annoyances. The standard common memory of the exchange that day between McNamara and Anderson aligns with McNamara's memory of the event, though that might just be because McNamara was the last man standing. McNamara asked Anderson, When the ship reaches the line, how are you going to stop it? He said, We'll hail it. McNamara asked, in what language, English or Russian? Anderson replied, How the hell do I know? Clearly a little agitated by McNamara's questioning. So McNamara asked, Well, what will you do if they don't understand? I suppose we'll use flags. Well, what if they don't stop? We'll send a shot across the bow. Then what, if that doesn't work? Then we'll fire into the rudder. McNamara remembered that Anderson was clearly very annoyed at this point. The Secretary of Defense said, You're not going to fire a single shot at anything without my express permission, is that clear? Then Anderson allegedly made the remark, The Navy has been running blockades since the days of John Paul Jones. To which McNamara didn't so much explain, as he condescendingly stated, that it wasn't a blockade, it was a means of communication between Kennedy and Khrushchev, and no force, not bow shots or rudder disabling, would be taken without express permission from he, the Secretary of Defense. Admiral Anderson remembered the event differently. Mostly that the only reference to John Paul Jones in the room came from McNamara himself when Anderson explained that every ship had tactical publications aboard for every conceivable contingency, to which McNamara responded, I don't care what John Paul Jones would have done, which seems fairly likely as well. Many thought that Admiral Anderson's next appointment would be to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Instead, he was forced to retire. McNamara's clash that day was the final straw, and he said to Kennedy, either Anderson goes or I go. So Anderson went.
Why do I bring this incident up now, talking about what might have been? Well, to Anderson, the tactical publications that described what a ship's commander could or should do in any given instance were virtuous. The rigidity of doctrine was a good thing, and maybe under more normal, or at least more traditional circumstances, it would have been. But what McNamara was perhaps inartfully expressing in the flag plot that day was that the circumstances were far from normal, and that the consequences of an action, even one laid down in doctrine since the days of John Paul Jones, might prove to be incalculably destructive. Another thing that drove Anderson crazy about McNamara was what Anderson felt was an over-preoccupation with detail. Knowing that there would be potentially contentious interactions with Russian ships, Anderson, top-notch officer that he undoubtedly was, ordered that there should be Russian-language speakers assigned to every ship involved in the quarantine. But for McNamara, this wasn't enough. Anderson recalled that as commander of naval operations, he issued an order and expected it to be followed, but he didn't get personally involved in the execution of that order. But McNamara wanted individual confirmation from each ship that a Russian-language officer was physically aboard. Militarily, it's understandable that this is insulting, and it short-circuits the whole deeply indoctrinated structure of the chain of command. But from McNamara's point of view, and to be fair, from our point of view, looking back omnisciently in hindsight, McNamara was attempting to quash the possibility that the smallest mistake, a Russian speaker who didn't quite make it to his new assignment on time, would prove to be the catalyst for a global war. With stakes that high, did it hurt to micromanage? Anderson thought so. That brings me to the Soviets and how the greatest dangers during the Cuban Missile Crisis lay in their delegation of power. You might think of the Soviet juggernaut as a bureaucratic machine with little individual agency, but that was not the case in October 1962. And for that story, with John Paul Jones commanding the blockade above, we'll go beneath those Caribbean waves. On Saturday, October 27th, the most dangerous day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, only hours after Rudolf Anderson's U-2 was shot down over Cuba by newly installed Soviet surface-to-air missiles, and as President Kennedy was moving ever closer to authorizing air bombardment and invasion, another crisis was brewing, 300 feet underwater at the quarantine line. Since the 23rd, under orders from Robert McNamara, U.S. Navy anti-submarine warfare forces had been tracking Soviet submarines in the Atlantic on their way to Cuba. Four Foxtrot-class submarines had been deployed to the Caribbean. B-4, B-36, B-59, and B-130. These four submarines were sent as a vanguard 
to establish a submarine base at Mariel Bay near Havana. The anti-submarine warfare forces played cat and mouse with the submarines during the last days of the crisis, with orders not to engage the submarines, but to force them to surface and identify themselves. It was on the 24th that President Kennedy fretted the most over having the first action of the quarantine be a confrontation with a Soviet submarine. You'll recall, he asked, isn't there some way? Anything but that. But McNamara reminded him that it was simply too dangerous to have Soviet submarines darting in and out of the quarantine line. And so, efforts to surface the subs went ahead. Those efforts were laid out in the official document, Submarine Surfacing and Identification Procedures, which was shared with Moscow so that there would be no confusion when the ships of the quarantine began the process, which involved dropping practice depth charges, which would make a horrendous sound inside the submarines and be an unmistakable sign to any submarine commander that someone up there was asking them to surface. What neither McNamara nor the president nor any of the naval command knew at the time only came to light decades later when a Russian researcher named Alexander Mozgovoy published a book in 2002 about the missile crisis submarines. It was awkwardly but cleverly titled The Cuban Samba of the Quartet of Foxtrots. The book was only in Russian and was not released internationally, which delayed the full revelation of the danger that faced the fleet and the world as the U.S. Navy pursued the Soviet submarines in the Caribbean. What the U.S. did not know at the time was that they were trying to rattle the nerves of submariners by dropping practice depth charges on nuclear-armed submarines. Each of the foxtrots making its way through the quarantine to Cuba had a torpedo tipped with a 15-kiloton nuclear weapon. For a visual aid as to what the use of this special torpedo would have looked like, have a look at the famous pictures of Operation Crossroads Baker Test. You've seen it before, I know. It's the giant plume of water at Bikini Atoll in 1946. That bomb was slightly larger, but it's close enough. Close only counts in horseshoes, hand grenades, and nuclear torpedoes. Aboard Soviet sub B-130, the mood was tense as practice depth charges rained down around it from destroyers on the surface. The captain, Nikolai Shumkov, allegedly to look authoritative and impress the Communist Party political officer on the ship, ordered that the torpedoes be prepared to retaliate, including the nuclear torpedo. The special weapon, as it was called, had its own security officer attached to it, who told the captain that he couldn't arm the torpedo without orders from headquarters. The security officer then promptly fainted. Seeing that the special weapon engendered an unnatural and unnecessary stress in his men, the captain announced to his officers that he had no intention of using the torpedo because, he said, we would go up with it if we did. On October 30th, 
After an intense 17-hour chase by the destroyer USS Blandy, B-130 had run out of battery power and was running out of breathable air. The submarine surfaced without incident. But something far more disquieting happened aboard the Soviet submarine B-59 under the command of Captain Valentin Savitsky. In the years since this story came to light, about 15 now, it has received a lot of attention because of its cinematic quality. PBS made an hour-long documentary about the incident in 2012 and gave it the somewhat overstated title, The Man Who Saved the World. I'll put the link in the show notes. An intelligence officer aboard the B-59 named Vadim Orlov is the primary source for this incident. The story was first told in Mozgovoy's The Cuban Samba of the Quartet of Foxtrots. The story was translated from Russian for the National Security Archive, but some of the language retains that uniquely despairing Russian poetry. Mozgovoy begins the story by writing that the crew of the B-59 had to drink the cup of hardships to the bottom. Ouch. But to be sure, the hardships that filled that cup were many. On the Atlantic crossing, the diesel coolers were blocked with salt, rubber seals were torn, and the electric compressors broke. Finally, in the tropical waters around Cuba, B-59 came to the surface to charge its batteries, but was immediately spotted by a U.S. anti-submarine plane and had to dive, leaving the batteries nearly empty. B-59 had been pursued from the shores of the Soviet Union. First the Norwegians, then the British, and then the Americans, all searching for the deployed submarine, but never quite succeeding in finding it. As the submarine passed into the Caribbean, B-59's hydroacoustic specialist identified 14 surface ships in pursuit. B-59 continued to evade the group, but the ships surrounded the submarine and began to tighten the circle. As they did, the group ran anti-submarine warfare drills, practicing attacks, and dropping practice depth charges. Orlov remembered that the explosions next to the hall felt like sitting in a metal barrel, which somebody was constantly blasting with a sledgehammer. Orlov offered the very Russian understatement, quote, The situation was quite unusual, if not to say shocking. As the pursuit wore on, the batteries, which were already barely charged, ran dry. Though emergency lights were still functional, the atmospheric controls had shut down, and the temperature in the submarine rose to 45 to 50 degrees Celsius, about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Without power, the carbon dioxide rose to critical levels. One of the duty officers passed out, and then another, and then another. Orlov remembered that they were falling like dominoes. There was still a chance that B-59 could escape the tightening noose, and so the captain continued evasive maneuvers for another four hours. 
the crew sweating and passing out all the way. At some point in the pursuit, Orlov remembered that B-59 was hit with something more powerful than the practice depth charges that had been raining down around them. It's unclear what this might have been, and it's doubtful that the anti-submarine pursuit ships would have escalated with a real depth charge, at least not one that was intended to damage the submarine in question. The message regarding the procedure for identifying submarines, which had been communicated to the Kremlin to avoid mistakes, including the fact that only practice depth charges would be used, never made its way to B-59. And so when something apparently larger came down on them, the captain thought that the situation on the surface had escalated. There are a couple of other points here that are essential to understanding what comes next in this story. The signals officer had been monitoring civilian broadcasts from the United States. You'd be surprised to know that this was, and still is, one of the best ways for a submarine to make sure that a nuclear war hasn't broken out on the surface. But when the intense pursuit began, B-59 was forced to dive deeper. Saltwater is a really fantastic radio attenuator. The submarine didn't have to go very deep at all to completely lose radio reception. Hence, no verification on whether war had broken out or not. Another effect of this is that the captain was out of contact with his superiors, whether Soviet naval headquarters or the Kremlin itself. It was entirely possible that World War III had already started above. The captain became furious at the escalating assault. He called for the special weapons security officer and ordered that he begin the assembly of the nuclear torpedo. The captain said, Maybe the war has already started up there, while we are doing somersaults down here. We're going to blast them, now. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not disgrace our navy. In an ideal situation, two men aboard each Soviet submarine were required to agree to launch the special weapon, the captain of the ship and the political officer. In the case of B-59, there was a third man. His name was Vasily Arkhipov. He was the same rank as Captain Savitsky, but was the overall commander of the four-submarine detachment on their way to Cuba. This created a special case in which all three men, rather than two, had to agree to launch the nuclear torpedo. This is where the cinematic hyperbole kicks in. Arkhipov stood bravely against the captain and the political officer, single-handedly averting World War III. He was, as PBS phrased it, the man who saved the world. Or, as The Guardian put it, the man who stopped nuclear war. Much of the drama surrounding the events exists because of its supremely cinematic nature, and with minimal tweaking of the facts, it's easy to create a Cold War saint in Vasily Arkhipov. The supremely unreliable historical narrator Noam Chomsky fanned these flames with his 2007 Hegemony or Survival, in which he refers to Arkhipov as 
a Soviet submarine officer who blocked an order to fire, there was no order, nuclear-armed torpedoes, there was only one, not plural, at the tensest moment of the crisis when the submarines were under attack by U.S. destroyers. They were never, ever under attack. But, as that page in Chomsky's book reminds us, a guy named Arkhipov saved the world. Except, that is probably an overstatement. Captain Savitsky was subordinate to Arkhipov. Arkhipov didn't need to stand up to anyone. Despite the repeated assertions that political officer Maslenikov and Captain Savitsky were in agreement on the torpedo, with only Arkhipov standing against their unified front, Orlov's account of the incident tells a story that's probably far closer to reality. Quote, But we did not fire the nuclear torpedo. Captain Savitsky was able to rein in his wrath. After consulting with 2nd Captain Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov and Deputy Political Officer Ivan Semenovich Maslenikov, he made the decision to surface. And that was it. B-59 gave an echo locator signal, which meant that the submarine was coming to the surface. The USS Coney established communication with it, and eventually, after a rough getting-to-know-you period as the two ships bobbed beside one another in the tropical night, the Coney sent over freshly baked bread and cigarettes. Nuclear war averted. I really loathe sensational history, especially when it's unnecessary. Because on the most tense day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Noam Chomsky was right about that detail at least, there were four submarines in the Caribbean, each armed with a nuclear weapon, with sole authority to use that weapon vested in the captain and his political officer though there was nothing technologically or mechanically in the way of the captain firing that torpedo on his own. But that isn't entirely true. There was something in the way, and I do not mean Vasily Arkhipov. I mean that Soviet submarine commanders were highly disciplined professionals. Captain Savitsky had been through hours of torture the constant pounding by depth charges, the additional pounding made by the pursuing ships firing ultra-high amplitude sound waves from their sonar domes, the punishing heat, and what was certainly a nagging fear that a nuclear war had actually already started. All of this pushed him to lash out. He ran at the mouth for a little bit, threatened some nuclear fireworks, and to go down in a blaze of glory then he calmed down and did what was right for his crew, and the world, as it turned out, though that was probably not foremost on his mind. So, yes, a rogue use of a nuclear torpedo by any one of the four submarines in the detachment would have resulted in an escalation, possibly, or probably, into war. But it seems that by far the bigger danger under the extreme pressure of those circumstances was an accident, not an intentional use. Exhausted and distracted, the interface between those men and the technologies they possessed, including nuclear weaponry, became the most likely vector for disaster. 
Cooler heads and professionalism on the high seas prevented that disaster. And let's give thanks where thanks is due to Vasily Arkhipov, who at least had the presence of mind to see the bigger military picture, even from 300 feet under the waves. Part 3. Friggin' Around with Missiles The Joint Chiefs of Staff were very much in favor of an air campaign, followed by an invasion. This was largely because of their frustration with the piecemeal way that the Kennedy administration had dealt with a variety of world events up to that point. On Friday the 19th, Kennedy spent the better part of an hour going over the state of the situation with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The president laid out the options, each an escalation. He said that an airstrike that would take out the missiles was one action which would have a certain escalating effect. A wider airstrike that would sweep the island and take out the Soviet aircraft would have a different effect. The third step would be an invasion, which would bring down yet another, different Soviet response. General Curtis LeMay let it be known that an airstrike on the missiles alone wouldn't be enough. He said that unless the aircraft were taken out at the same time, then they would be used against U.S. forces, whether during an invasion or during surveillance. LeMay said that it wouldn't make any sense to do anything but take out the missiles, air power, radar, communications, and, as he put it, the whole works. Throughout the day, Kennedy leaned gradually closer to a more proactive response than the naval blockade. He still supported the blockade, but McGeorge Bundy had met with him before the Joint Chiefs and told the president that he had changed his mind in the night. He now supported a surprise attack. This was a big shift from Bundy's opinion on Thursday that taking any action would be too risky because of the precarious state of Berlin. Kennedy asked LeMay when a strike on the whole works could be ready. The general answered that they could be ready for an attack at dawn on Sunday the 21st, though Tuesday morning would be the preferred date with more time to prepare. General Taylor backed LeMay. He said, Tuesday is the optimum date. As a gift to historians, after the meeting, Kennedy left his secret tape recorder running, and it captured a candid discussion between the Joint Chiefs that left no doubt that they would continue pushing for a massive air campaign and follow-on amphibious invasion. General David Shoup Commandant of the Marine Corps said, quote, If somebody could keep them from doing the goddamn thing piecemeal, that's our problem. You go in there and friggin' around with the missiles, you're screwed. You go in and frig around with anything else, you're screwed. You're screwed, screwed, screwed. And if some goddamn thing, some way, he could say, either do this son of a bitch and do it right and quit friggin' around. That was my conclusion. Don't frig around and go take a missile out. God damn it. If he wants to do it, you can't fiddle around with taking out missiles. You can't fiddle around with hitting the missile sites and then the SAM sites. You gotta go in and take out the goddamn thing that's gonna stop you from doing your job. 
A simple translation of General Shoup's colorful diatribe is that he supported either the maximum action or nothing at all. With the rest of the Joint Chiefs on the same page, on Friday the 19th, there was absolutely every reason to believe that some kind of direct military action would be taken by Tuesday at dawn. And this is where we look at a few of those unknown unknowns in the context of what we do know in hindsight. Even if the Joint Chiefs got their way and an air campaign would take out the known sites, a land invasion would have taken days to formulate and execute. Even then, the invading force would have been met by more than 200,000 regular and reserve Cuban troops and more than 40,000 professional Soviet soldiers, not the eight or 10,000 that the military planners expected. And that's assuming the invasion force would have even gotten the chance to land. Because the unknown unknown up the Soviet commander's sleeves would have been a terrible surprise indeed. In 1992, at a conference in Havana for veterans of the crisis that coincided with the 30th anniversary, Soviet General Anatoly Gribkov, who had been an army chief of operations during the missile crisis, revealed that Moscow had deployed nine nuclear-tipped Luna missiles in Cuba. Commanders were instructed to use them against the expected U.S. invasion force. A quick addendum. Even in this moment of revelation, the old Soviet secrecy died hard. The general had layers of dishonesty. There were actually 12 nuclear-tipped Lunas. Former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara was in attendance at the conference, and when he heard that there were deployed tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba during the crisis, he had to hold on to a table to steady himself. Of course, in that moment, every piece of advice from the XCOM and every decision made by President Kennedy must have come rushing back to him. Now, in the new context, completely changed, knowing that there had been operational tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba and the local will to use them. Local commanders had been given the authority to launch the tactical warheads to defend against an American invasion. But after Kennedy's televised address on the 22nd, Khrushchev rescinded the order for autonomous control. Like the torpedoes and the captains of the Soviet submarines, there was a standing order that might have come across more as a request that any use be authorized directly by the Kremlin. But in practice, the submarine commanders were on autonomous missions and were trusted to independently command their ships and their special weapons. The same can be said for those commanders in the field on the island of Cuba. Recently released documents from the former Soviet Union are clear on the fact that the nuclear weapons under local command could only be released after authorization from Moscow after the 22nd. With that said, there was no technological, mechanical, or other means of negative control by the Kremlin over the weapons, 
And of course, in any catastrophic wartime situation, control would be handed over to the local commanders anyway. This means that the nine, or twelve, nuclear lunas in Cuba were under the practical control of local commanders and could have been used at any time, and would have been used on any U.S. invasion. Imagine then that Curtis LeMay had gotten exactly what he had asked for, an initial airstrike that eliminated the missiles, the Aleutians, the radar, and the communications. Then, as local commanders struggled to re-establish communication with Moscow, the invasion force began steaming for Cuban shores. Remember poor Captain Savitsky of B-59, a real, not a hypothetical case, he had gone more than a day without communication from headquarters and was ready to fire the nuclear torpedo. Now, of course, there is plenty of room for Arkhipov-style hero worship, a single man against a nuclear holocaust, though we will never know the name or names of the men who might have acted, or might not have. There were teams of technicians, as well as political officers, between field commanders and the launch of nuclear weapons. So, maybe disaster would have been averted once again. Or maybe not. The Lunas had not been spotted by U.S. intelligence. After a catastrophic airstrike, with communications in ruins and perhaps thousands of Soviet soldiers dead, the Lunas would have been repositioned and hidden. And then, in a few days, when the massive U.S. naval fleet carrying its thousands of troops for the inevitable landing was within range, it is impossible to imagine Soviet field commanders having survived the air bombardment, witnessing an invasion, and not using every weapon they had at their disposal, including the tactical nuclear warheads. Given what was learned during Operation Crossroads at Bikini Atoll in the South Pacific in 1946, the Lunas, though lofting warheads with the yield of the bomb that leveled Hiroshima, would not destroy the fleet. If the warhead were detonated above the water's surface, then the ships would be burned and battered, but remain intact. Unfortunately, the soldiers, marines, and sailors of the invasion force would die either quickly and mercifully, or slowly and miserably. That much we do know. It's doubtful that anyone in command of the missiles would wait for the beach landing, but if they did, no matter how many troops or on what shore of the island, the result would have been the same. The immediate escalation of the Cuban Missile Crisis to a nuclear exchange. If you have any doubt of that, I'll refer you to the following. At that 1992 conference where Robert McNamara had to clutch the table to keep from falling down when he heard about the tactical warheads, he had this to say. We don't need to speculate what would have happened. It would have been an absolute disaster for the world. No one should believe that a U.S. force could have been attacked by tactical nuclear warheads without responding with nuclear warheads. And where would it have ended? In utter disaster. 
Also at that 1992 conference, you'll remember that General Anatoly Gribkov kind of added layers of dishonesty to his narrative, even in that venue which was supposed to shed some light on the crisis. Well, he did shed some light. He just wasn't entirely illuminating. He said that there were nine Lunas with nuclear warheads. There were twelve. Well, I suppose you were expecting this, though I know Robert McNamara wasn't. There were actually 158 nuclear weapons deployed to Cuba, with 98 of them part of systems that were very much ready to be used during and well after the missile crisis. Let me break down the numbers for you. During the crisis, there were 42 SS-4 medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, with their 24 launchers. These were the missiles that the U.S. knew about, and they were at the center of the crisis, putting the missile in missile crisis. But the missiles without nuclear warheads were not so dangerous. By the time the quarantine went into effect on the 24th, there were 158 nuclear devices in Cuba of five types. The first shipment had arrived on October 4th at Mariel. This included 36 warheads for the SS-4 missiles, 36 for the FKR-1 surface-to-surface ground combat missiles, 12 warheads for the Luna missiles, and 6 nuclear bombs for the Aleutian 28s. On October 23rd, just before the quarantine, 68 more warheads arrived at La Isabella. These included 44 for the FKR missiles and 24 for the SS-5 missiles that hadn't yet been delivered. These warheads were never actually unloaded. This gives you some idea of just how large the functional nuclear force in Cuba was, even if the MRBMs that could reach the United States were still unfinished. Deterrence only works if the other side knows what weapons you're threatening to use. Even during the heightened threats of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Khrushchev must have known that an amphibious invasion of Cuba by the U.S. was a real option, the existence of the tactical nuclear weapons was never revealed by the Soviets. This means that their purpose was not deterrence. It was to repel a U.S. invasion. They were there to be used. It is as simple as that. What was the long-term plan for all of these nuclear weapons? None much smaller than the Hiroshima bomb, and many quite a bit larger. Well, the Soviet plan brings us to the wildest what-if of all. And that's saying something when it comes to the missile crisis. By the beginning of 1963, there were very nearly five nuclear powers in the world. The United States, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, France, and Cuba. Did I say Cuba? Yes, I did. Because that was the Soviet plan for the missiles, to make Cuba the first Latin American nuclear power by handing over control of 98 tactical nuclear warheads to Fidel Castro until he shot himself in the foot, metaphorically speaking. 
This is a dimension of the crisis that rarely makes it into the narrative. But it's important when trying to understand why Kennedy felt compelled to take action on the missiles in Cuba. The common answer, the textbook answer, is that the missiles, being placed in the Western sphere of influence, changed the balance of power somehow. And that the very short warning times that these medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba would offer made the situation too dangerous to tolerate. But those warning times were already a fact of life when you consider the new development of Soviet ballistic missile submarines that could lurk off the U.S. East Coast and offer even shorter warning times. And in that meeting between the President and the Joint Chiefs of Staff on Friday the 19th, both Kennedy and General Maxwell Taylor discussed the fact that the Cuban missiles really were not the problem. Kennedy said, The logical argument is that we don't really have to invade Cuba. That's just one of the difficulties that we live with in life, like we live with the Soviet Union and China. I do think we ought to be aware of the fact that the existence of these missiles does add to the danger, but doesn't create it. The danger is right there now. They've got enough to give us, between submarines and ICBMs or whatever planes they do have, I mean, now they can kill, especially if they concentrate on the cities, I mean, they've pretty well got us there anyway. General Maxwell Taylor continued this line of reasoning. He said, And by logic, we ought to be able to say we can deter these missiles as well as the Soviet missiles, the ones from the Soviet Union. Meaning that deterrence through the means already established, mutual assured destruction and the like, applied to missiles in Cuba as well as it applied to missiles in the Soviet Union. So what was the real motive for determining absolutely that the missiles had to be removed? What made the situation in Cuba something new under the sun? General Taylor went on, I think the thing that worries us is these being potentially under the control of Castro. Castro would be quite a different fellow to own missiles than Khrushchev. I don't think that's the case now, and perhaps Khrushchev would never willingly do so, but there's always the risk of their falling into Cuban hands. Oh yes, there was that risk. And Khrushchev would willingly do so. That had been the plan all along. But once again, some kind of providence intervened, acting through Fidel Castro's generally bad behavior. Khrushchev all but lied when he agreed to the terms of Kennedy's offer on the 28th. In exchange for a public promise not to invade Cuba and the private promise to remove the Jupiter missiles from Turkey, Khrushchev agreed to Kennedy's demand to remove all the nuclear-capable aircraft and what Khrushchev referred to as those missiles you describe as offensive. This meant the SS-4 medium-range ballistic missiles and any SS-5s, though none had been delivered. Along with the aircraft and missiles, their nuclear warheads were to be sent back to the Soviet Union. But as I said, Khrushchev all but lied. Or, when he declared that the missiles were being removed, he lied by omission. The tactical warheads had not been part of the agreement because the U.S. hadn't known they were there. 
clearly not in the category of the prohibited missiles, Khrushchev decided to leave them in Cuba and, after appropriate training, hand them over to the Cuban military. So, even though the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis ended in the public eye on the 28th of October 1962, there was more intrigue still to be played out in secret. Soviet Deputy Prime Minister Anastas Mikoyan was sent on a mission to Cuba in November, immediately following the end of the public crisis to negotiate the future of a nuclear Cuba. Mikoyan was an old Bolshevik and one of the most senior men in the Soviet system, demonstrating how important the resolution of the Cuban situation was to Khrushchev. Moreover, Mikoyan had a personal relationship with Castro dating back to 1960, which Khrushchev hoped would lubricate the political process. At the end of the 13 days, Fidel Castro was outraged. The removal of the missiles had emasculated him in the perception of Latin American governments, and he felt that he had been a pawn. Beyond his personal feelings, the removal of the weapons left Castro without a plausible deterrent against invasion, only 18 months after the Bay of Pigs. Alexander Alexeyev, the Soviet ambassador to Cuba who had spent that tense night during the crisis in the embassy fallout shelter with Castro as he formulated a letter to Khrushchev demanding a preemptive nuclear strike, cabled Moscow that he had never seen Castro so distraught and irate. When Mikoyan arrived in Havana, Castro was so furious at the Soviet Union for its perceived betrayal that he refused to see the deputy prime minister for 10 days. But Mikoyan and Khrushchev were beginning to see that following through with the transfer of nuclear weapons to Castro might not be the best idea they'd ever had. Mikoyan pondered the frantic letter from Castro from the fallout shelter that demanded a preemptive strike. Then, on the 19th of November, with negotiations still ongoing, Castro instructed his UN ambassador to announce that Cuba had tactical nuclear weapons. The instructions were quickly recalled, and it became clear that it was a move to remind the Soviet Union that Castro was not emasculated. Or, as Mikoyan came to understand, Cuba was a tail that could wag the Soviet dog. And this situation was just not tenable. The confrontation happened on November 22nd in the presidential palace in Havana, in a room with Anastas Mikoyan, an original Bolshevik revolutionary, Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, and Che Guevara, far angrier and younger revolutionaries, and a few functionaries scattered around the edges. Castro was obsessed with the nuclear weapons. He brought the conversation back to the tactical weapons numerous times during the conversation. Then, at some point, Mikoyan took it upon himself to end the Cuban nuclear experiment. Castro asked for the weapons to be transferred to Cuba, and Mikoyan said that a Soviet law prohibited the transfer of any nuclear weapons, including the tactical ones, to anybody. 
Castro asked if it would be possible to leave the tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba, but leave them in Soviet hands. Mikoyan said, alas, no, because the Soviet troops were only advisors, and they would need to return to the Soviet Union. I believe that the Cuban nuclear experiment that resulted in the missile crisis began in hope and enthusiasm, not cynicism. That view is at least partially shared by Anastas Mikoyan's son, Sergo, who accompanied his father on the mission to Havana and became a preeminent scholar of Soviet Latin American policy. He later wrote that the old men who ruled the Kremlin in the early 1960s saw in Cuba a young and virile socialist revolution that needed Moscow's support. This is supported by Anastas Mikoyan's own words, as related by Secretary of State Dean Rusk in his memoir. After the troubled mission to Havana, Mikoyan came to Washington, D.C. for some informal meetings. He said, You Americans must understand what Cuba means to us old Bolsheviks. We have been waiting all our lives for a country to go communist without the Red Army. And it happened in Cuba. It makes us feel like boys again. By the end of the mission to Havana, Mikoyan and the Kremlin had a very different opinion of Castro and the rest of the Cuban leaders. They saw them as hotheads who were preparing their country to die in the fire of a nuclear confrontation with the United States in the name of world socialism. On his trip to Washington after Havana, Mikoyan related a story that Dean Rusk found both lighthearted and fascinating. He said, You know, that fellow Castro is crazy. He kept me, Mikoyan, waiting for ten days without seeing me. I finally told him if he didn't see me the next morning, I was going home, and he would be sorry. He finally saw me. You know, that Castro is crazy. All of the nuclear devices were crated, removed from Cuba, and returned to the Soviet Union by the beginning of December. Part 4. Look Out Your Window. Just a short conclusion. After the now nearly infamous airing of the television movie The Day After in the United States, Ted Koppel hosted a panel to discuss the film. He began the debate with some reassuring words. There is, and you probably need it about now, there is some good news. If you can, take a quick look out the window. It's all still there. After looking at all of the things that might have gone wrong in the Cuban Missile Crisis, it might be helpful to remember that those things just didn't go wrong. It is always a political action to take sides in matters of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War generally, to beatify Kennedy, to demonize Khrushchev, to conflate the good decisions of McNamara made during those days in the XCOM with some arguably questionable decisions under Johnson that exacerbated the Vietnam War. 
everyone has their angels and their demons. But there is a simpler way, and an apolitical way, to understand how, for as many branching dead ends in the decision process, for as many more paths that led to nuclear war as brought about a peaceful resolution, there's another way to understand how a small group of men in the White House and the Kremlin threaded a needle through the valley of the shadow of death and came out the far end having not destroyed the world. It is a way of comprehending and explaining history that takes no sides except perhaps the preference for living over dying. If the events and decisions and accidents, whether happy or tragic, of those days in October 1962 had unfolded almost any way other than the way that they did, then we wouldn't be here to have this discussion. But they did, and we are. So take a quick look out the window and be glad. Thank you so much for listening to The Cold War Vault. This episode and this series was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. If you liked this episode and this series on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I'm looking forward to making it into a short audiobook with at least an hour of new narrative content and newly uncovered material. Subscribe to The Vault on Facebook for updates on that project. Also in the short-term works for the new year will be some Cuban Missile Crisis-themed merchandise, but only for you who have stayed with me through this whole scary adventure. There are a lot of exciting things happening, actually. So, like and subscribe on Facebook at Cold War Vault, Twitter too, all of the show notes, links, videos, and clips are available on coldwarvault.com as soon as I get around to posting them. It's been an interesting year. Let's hope we have another one. Until next time.